0: Well, after the span of over five months, we return to our verse-by-verse study through the book of James. And as we prepare to resume this study tonight, and as we seek to make further progress through this book in the weeks to come, I want to offer a few comments by way of preface. For starters, I want to simply address the question of why we took such a long break in our study through the book of James. That's been a question that's come to my attention over the past few months, and I've had personal conversations with people about this uh, reason for postponing our study through this book. So I just want to set the record straight in this lesson so that we don't have to readdress it moving forward. As some of you may already know, First Baptist Church Edna was plagued by controversy for over a year and a half. And unfortunately, as we were drawing the study of chapter 2 to a conclusion last November, for the listener, that's November of 2021, things really began to deteriorate in the life of that congregation. Upon recognizing the turbulent state of that church, First Baptist Church of Edna, I made the decision to suspend Wednesday night youth activities in order to enable our youth and adult leaders to attend the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Since the environment of FBC Edna had become so hostile at that point, it appeared clear to me and to our youth committee that the only way for anything to be resolved in our church was to entrust the church body to the Lord in prayer. We were at the point where the only thing we could conceivably think of for solving the problem in FBC Edna was to pray and to turn the whole situation in that church over to the most high. So with that at the forefront of our mind around... The middle to the end of November 2021, we decided to have our youth and adult leaders. Go to the Wednesday night prayer meetings, and by God's grace, we were able to study the theology of prayer in a study by uh, J.C. Ryle called A Call to Prayer. We were able to study uh, the book of Philemon and look at some biblical principles for conflict resolution. We were also able to take a mini-study and looking at what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of the church, particularly on the subjects of elders and deacons. So we had a lot of good studies between November of 2021 and now. But unfortunately, despite the, the fruit that we saw from our private studies as a youth ministry, and despite our efforts to pray at the weekly prayer meetings, we found that as of last weekend, it was not God's will for biblical reconciliation to take place in the life of FBC Edna. So as of April 2024, 2022, I was formally dismissed from my duties at FBC Edna, and sadly, I was dismissed without any biblical or moral basis. As such, now that I am no longer engaged with the ongoing controversy at FBC Edna, I am prepared to resume teaching through the book of James as often as I have opportunities to do so. In fact, my current plan is to host weekly fellowship gatherings on Thursday nights, and to use those occasions as a context for preaching through the book of James expositionally. We will also use those gatherings, as we just did moments ago, to pray together, to sing together, to encourage one another in our faith, to strive to be good stewards of all that our Lord has entrusted to us wherever He has called us in this life. And just by way of preface, one last stipulation to make sure that everybody is aware of as we prepare to begin tonight's study These Thursday night fellowship gatherings will not be affiliated with any church. In fact, these fellowship gatherings that we host on Thursday nights are open to anybody in our community or surrounding region that desires to be here in attendance. So if you're here tonight in person or if you're listening to the audio recording of this message, I want to encourage you, not only make it a habit to come to these gatherings on a weekly basis, we would love for you to be here, But we would also really love if you brought some friends or family members who are looking for a good Christ-centered and Bible-centered Bible study and fellowship group to be a part of. And in doing so, hopefully this this group will experience a little bit of growth as we move forward and uh, begin to really dive into the rest of James, particularly the 3rd, 4th, and 5th chapter. So, having said that by way of introduction... If you have not done so already, I do want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. I have done longer introductions before, so um, hopefully that wasn't too long or too tedious. Just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page. James chapter 3 is where we're going to be at for the next several months, probably, is what it's looking like. James chapter 3. And since tonight is going to be the first lesson in a new section of James's letter, we're going to be reading 12 verses, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3, at the outset of tonight's study. And as you make your way to that portion of James's letter, James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, let me just briefly remind you of some of the key pieces of background information that undergirds this letter. We were joking around just a few moments before starting that. Many people here may not even remember anything about the book of James. After all, it's been over five months, so let's make sure we're all on the same page as to the basic background information that really undergirds the totality of this New Testament letter. You may recall that the book of James was the first book that was written in our New Testament canon. It was written likely between the years 43 and 45 A.D., And you may recall that it was originally written as a letter to Jewish Christians who had to flee Jerusalem under the persecution they were experiencing from King Herod Agrippa. The author of the book of James was none other than James, (laughs) the oldest brother of Jesus Christ and the half-brother of Jude. Many of you guys are probably familiar with the book of Jude, the little epistle right at the end of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. That is the other half-brother of Jesus that we find mentioned at least explicitly in terms of having a letter named after them. So you have James, the oldest half-brother of Christ, wrote the book of James, and then you have Jude as well, another half-brother of Christ that wrote the book of Jude. You may also remember, for those of you who attended this study for any period of time, that the central theme for the book of James was summarized in the following way. You'll notice that in your handouts as well. How do we understand the book of James as a whole? Well, you could say it like this. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. True saving faith will always be demonstrated through how we live. That is a big picture, macro level summary of what the book of James is all about. In other words, we could understand the book of James like an instruction manual for how Christians should live out their faith before watching world. It's immensely practical. Many theologians throughout church history have referred to this letter as the New Testament book of wisdom. Just like the book of Proverbs was deemed the book of wisdom in the Old Testament, so also is the book of James often deemed the book of wisdom in the New Testament. We also noted in previous studies of this book that you could break down the book of James into 12 distinct sections. The structure of the book of James could be put together in 12 distinct parts. We covered five of those 12 sections in our Previous lessons. I believe we did 31 lessons prior to taking our five month hiatus. So let me give you the five sections that we've already covered just to make sure that we are all caught up and brought up to speed with where we're going to be at tonight and in the weeks to come. The first section, spanning from verse 1 to verse 18 of chapter 1, deals with modeling Christ like conduct in trials. Section number 2, spanning from verse 19 to verse 25 of chapter 1, deals with modeling Christ-like conduct by hearing and obeying God's Word. Section 3, the third section in the book of James, spans from verse 26 to verse 27 of the opening chapter, and we labeled that section as modeling Christ-like conduct through authentic religious expression. The fourth section, which spans from verse 1 to verse 13 of chapter 2, deals with modeling Christ-like conduct through impartiality. And lastly, the final section that we covered prior to our five-month hiatus in our study of James goes from verse 14 to the end of chapter 2, that is verse 26 of chapter 2. And that section deals with modeling Christ-like conduct through a living faith. Notice the Christ-centeredness of this letter. This letter presents to us several practical ways in which we can model the very character of Jesus Christ in our day-to-day lives as his followers. Having said this by way of review, as we prepare to examine verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3 in the weeks to come, we are now in the sixth section of this letter, and this particular section deals with how Christians are to model Christ like conduct through the speech patterns that they model. Modeling Christ like conduct through speech. That's going to be the label that we ascribe to the sixth section of the book of James. Again, spanning from verse 1 to 12 of chapter 3. As we prepare to engage in this section, in preparing for how we are going to attack it over the next few weeks, I thought that the following outline should help us gain really a helpful flow of James's argument. It's going to help us understand the flow of James's argument over the course of those twelve verses in chapter three. First sermon, and really the first portion of this outline for section six and. The book of James. I labeled it as a warning about the tongue's condemning power. And this is going to be the warning that we focus on tonight. As you guys may remember, and maybe painfully so, we sometimes only focus on one verse at a time during our study of books of the Bible. So tonight, warning number one, corresponding with verse one of chapter three, a warning about the tongue's condemning power. Second part of this outline of the sixth section of the book of James, corresponding from verse 2 to the first half of verse 5, I've chosen to categorize those verses with this heading, a warning about the tongue's controlling influence. Third, from the second half of verse 5 through verse 8, third part of this outline of the sixth section of James, labeled with this, Designation, A warning about the tongue's corrupting nature. And fourthly, the fourth and final heading for our outline through verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3, labeled as a warning about the tongue's contradicting tendencies. And that's going to be from verse 9 to verse 12. By God's grace, it is my prayer that if we heed each of the four warnings offered by James in this portion of his letter, then we're going to be thoroughly equipped to model Christ-like conduct through the words they speak as a pattern of life. That should bring us up to speed with where we left off in our previous study of the book of James. And now let's turn our attention to the text as we prepare to engage with that first Heading of verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3, a warning about the tongue's condemning power. Can I get a volunteer to read verses 1 to 6 of James 3? And a volunteer to read verses 7 to 12 of James 3. Emily, you can take verses 1 to 6, and Michael, you can take verses 7 to 12. Please feel free to follow along as they read from the text, and then we'll prepare to engage just with chapter just with verse 1 of chapter 3. uh, Because we're going to be looking at these 12 verses over the next few weeks, just so we're on the same page. We're going to read each of the 12 verses every time, and then we're going to focus on, on verse 1 this week. And then um, with each of those headings, we'll focus on the corresponding verses. But again, I want, to, I want us to make sure we're aware of the flow of what James is trying to set forth in these 12 verses. So Emma, whenever you're ready, take it away from verse 1 to 6, and Michael will follow in verses 7 to 12. Not
1: many of you should become teachers. My fellow believers, because you know that we that, that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their, their whole body in check. When we put when we when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or make ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered in a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and... Self set
2: on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless eagle full of deadly point out. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these these things ought not to be so. The spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Can and can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can the salt on the yield fresh water.
0: Appreciate both of our volunteers leading us in the reading of God's word. Very interesting pronunciation <laughs> on a few of those words. <laughs> but um, just wanted to address the elephant in the room. Um, for a listener, you kind of had to be here. To, to laugh. So, anyways, as I mentioned prior to our scripture reading, the corrects of tonight's message is going to be geared towards unpacking the warning that James gives us in verse 1. To accomplish this, to really dive into what James writes at the outset of chapter 3, we're going to take our central heading. Again, the central heading for verse 1 is a warning about the tongue's condemning power. And underneath that central heading, there's going to be three subheadings. And hopefully in providing you with these three subheadings, we're going to be able to figure out how this verse and the totality of Scripture helps us have a full-orbed warning about the tall order that it is to study the Word of God and ultimately to teach the Word of God to others. The first heading that I want to draw our attention to from verse 1, the first subheading that is, is regarding the identity of the audience. Subheading number one, referring to verse one. We're going to consider the identity of the audience. Now based on what we can see written in James 3.1, can anybody here tonight tell me who James is directing this warning to? Who does he have in mind? Believers, Believers, right? And where did you you get that conclusion at? What gave you that, that hint? My brethren, that's exactly right. So, um, does anybody remember us talking a little bit about how often James uses the term either beloved or my brethren? Anybody remember? I know it's been a while. If you don't, that's okay. Um, James uses that particular designation, either beloved or my brethren. He uses it on 14 different occasions throughout the course of this letter. Now, what's the significance about that? Well, it just shows that James was very intentional to provide two insights that he wanted his readers to take from the letter. Even as they consider the different parts of the letter, there was a central theme that James, one or two central themes rather that I believe James is trying to communicate as he continually reiterates that his audience is deemed as brethren and as beloved. The first takeaway or the first insight that I believe James is trying to set forth to his audience and using those designations could be summarized in this way. James had a deep love for the people that he originally wrote this letter to. In fact, in every chapter, this is very fascinating, at least for me as a pastor. In every chapter, James refers to his first century readers as either my brethren or beloved. And I think there's a really penetrating takeaway that we can make from this observation. Especially me, maybe I'm just reading this in because I'm a pastor, but I think you guys would agree. Every man who has been truly called (laughs) to serve in a position of spiritual leadership will have a genuine love for the people that they have been called to serve. I mean, would you agree with that by and large? I mean, if you examine every New Testament letter Literally, I did this in preparing for tonight's message. In every New Testament epistle, the author of that letter explicitly mentions his love for the people he's writing to on at least one occasion. In several of the letters, the author will mention it many, many times. Like I said in James, he seems to indicate his deep love for his readers on at least 14 explicit occasions. And my friends, this is a crucial observation about one of the distinguishing qualities of a godly man serving in a position of spiritual leadership. You see, when God calls a man into the role of spiritual leadership, whether it be an apostle during the first century or as an elder or a deacon in the centuries thereafter, that man who God has called will be consumed with a deep love for the people that God has entrusted To their care. The man called by God to serve in a position of spiritual leadership doesn't only love God's people because he's been commanded to do so, although we can all certainly agree that God commands pastors to love the people that God has placed under their care, just like God has commanded all people to love their neighbor, their enemies, and so on. But it's something deeper than that. Godly spiritual leaders love God's people. Because the Holy Spirit has kindled such a love in their souls. And they are committed to reflecting the kind of love that God has bestowed unto those who are united, by, united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. I think of a text like Philippians 1.8 where we hear this sentiment echoed by the Apostle Paul. Philippians 1.8. Listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, before the living God, I can honestly say that I have a deep affection for you. I long to be with you, says Paul. And when I was studying that particular verse as a cross-reference for the point that I'm making here, the term that Paul uses for affection in Philippians 1.8 eight. Is the Greek term splachna? It is a term that refers to the guts of something, not like literal, like intestines or or like literal guts. Talking about the, the most deep seated, heartfelt, self sacrificial emotions or affections that one can have, it strikes to the very core of a person's perception of another person. And this type of love, this type of affection for the people of God, that pastors and godly spiritual leaders feel for God's people. It's a type of love that continually seeks the temporal and eternal welfare of the ones they have been called to serve. Even if those people treat them poorly, even if those people commit sin. The pastor, the godly spiritual leaders, the elders, the deacons, the apostles during the first century, men who have truly been called by God to serve in those positions of leadership will have an organic, Holy Spirit produced love for those that God has put under their care. It's not something they just manufacture or pull themselves up by their bootstraps to model, it's something that God gives them as a gift of His grace. And rest assured, my friends, anybody who truly has the call of God upon their life, though they won't be perfect, they will certainly model a habitual pattern of loving the people they minister to because they're consumed with God's love for them. And in in, in so doing, they are able to manifest a godly love towards those in their care. I'm certainly not a perfect man. You guys have known me now for two years. I have my fair share of faults. I've made my fair share of mistakes as a pastor over the past two years. But I can honestly say, echoing the words of Paul, God is my witness. And in the sight of some of you who know me best, I truly have seen God bear this supernatural kind of love in me for you and for so many others that God has brought at FBC Edna. Under my care, whether youth or young families. And I want you all to know that regardless of where God leads me and my wife uh, in the immediate long term future, there is a deep rooted love for you and your families that we will always have for you. And it's because God has given us that love and He has, by the work of the Holy Spirit, caused us, as it were, to be bound together. He has knitted our souls with one another. And I want you to know it is an absolute joy and privilege to serve each and every one of your families on a regular basis. And I pray that God will continue to strengthen our bond of love that we enjoy for many, many years to come. That is a, a deep prayer for me. And I want you all to know that I have that feeling for you guys within my own knot, within my own guts. That's the kind of love that God has given um, me for you, so I, I really hope y'all always know how much we care about y'all. But there's a second takeaway, not to get too sentimental, though that is grounds for sentimentality. I'm trying to keep my composure here. Uh, the second takeaway that I want us to make from the intended audience that James is addressing here is that he's addressing believers, and this is really what Hannah was getting at just moments ago. James is addressing people who are self-identifying followers of Jesus Christ. And those self-identifying followers of Christ had made credible professions of faith. They had made tangible evidence in their life that they were following Jesus Christ faithfully. But notice this, despite the fact that James is, is engaging with self-identifying Christians, the fact that James is directing this warning to self-identifying Christians, Christians who had walked the walk, they had lived consistently with their faith, this goes to show you that there is value in heeding the warnings of Scripture. You see, not one of us is beyond needing warnings and commandments and prohibitions to take notice of as we engage and a study of the Word of God. Let me ask you a question here. Have you ever wondered why Scripture is filled with so many warnings? Have you ever wondered why Scripture has so many different commandments and prohibitions for believers to adhere to? Why why can't God just give us the ability, I think we all can agree God has the ability to give us the ability to model perfect Christ-like character from the moment of our salvation to the moment of our death. We all recognize God has that power, but have you ever wondered why God just doesn't enable us to be perfect from the time we get saved to the time He calls us home? Why does God not do that? Well, there's many different ways and approaches to answering that question. I don't want to chase too many rabbits here tonight. So for the sake of being focused... On the task at hand, I want to just present you with a quote from R.C. Sproul. Because I think R.C. Sproul offers a compelling answer to these questions namely, why is Scripture filled with so many warnings for believers to adhere to? And why God just doesn't give us the ability to model perfect Christ like conduct from the moment of our salvation to the moment of our death? Listen to what Sproul says with some of these questions in mind. I think you will find this fascinating to consider. At least I did in preparing this message. Sproul notes this, God the Holy Spirit works in and through His Word to keep us in faith, encouraging us to persevere and warning us lest we fall away. These encouragements and warnings are God's means of keeping us in His grace, for the Spirit always works in the hearts of the elect to make them heed the encouragements and warnings in Scripture so that they never fall away fully and finally from Christ. Sproul continues, So even though Jesus accomplished salvation for His people once and for all, He continues to work by the Spirit through His Word to preserve us in faith, while we remain on this side of glory and, and supporting his line of reasoning there, Sproul notes the following verses, Isaiah 55, 10 to 11, Mark 4, verses 1 to 20, John 16, 13, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and 1 John two nineteen. And of course, that is the conclusion of that quote from Dr. Sproul. In your handout, I included... The link and the, the citation material from that particular article along with that quote in Scripture references. So would encourage you to go and check that out. A pretty good article that pertains to these questions of why Scripture is full of so many warnings and why God just doesn't give believers the ability after salvation to model perfect character in this life. But did you catch what Spro was saying in a nutshell here? I think this is extremely fascinating. According to Sproul, for reasons known only to God, God has been pleased to use the warnings of Scripture as a means of preserving His people in their faith and in their obedience to His commanded will. Or if I could put it in a different way, from eternity past it pleased God to ordain for the warnings of Scripture, to function as a tool for instructing and sustaining His people in their spiritual pilgrimage. My friends, this is a perfect example of what Paul belabors throughout the course of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20-29. to 29. Very familiar text for some of you here. By our worldly and human standards, God has used something as foolish as the warnings of Scripture to direct believers in how they ought to live in a manner that's pleasing to Him. Think about that. God has the power and the ability to enable you and me at the moment of salvation to never sin again. He has that power. He has that ability. He has that right as God and as creator. But that's not what God's done. In accordance with His infinite wisdom, God uses warnings directed to Christians. Just like the one we found written in verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of James. To enable his people to persevere in their faith. That is the foolishness of man magnifying the wisdom of God. What is deemed foolish to man always magnifies God's wisdom when he has a purpose for doing so. As an overarching pattern of life, don't miss this. As an overarching pattern of life... True believers will give hearty attention to the warnings of Scripture, whereas open unbelievers and empty professors will simply not take the warnings of Scripture seriously. This is an observation that we would all do well to keep in mind as we engage with the text of James 3.1 in addition to any warning passage that we find in the Old or New Testaments. So having said that, we have now uncovered the identity of James's audience in the warning contained in verse 1. As we continue our analysis of verse 1, I want us to identify next, subheading number 2, I want us to identify the context of the warning. Subheading number 2, James 3.1, the context of the warning. Based on what we see written in James 3.1, is anybody here tonight willing to tell me what specific context James is directing his warning to. Again, right there in the text. What is the context that James is specifically directing this warning to? Mm -hmm. Well, like the context. Like what role or what act of service? Teachers. Teachers. That's right. Right? He says, Let not many of you become teachers. So my brethren... Right? That's the audience, self-identifying Christians. The context for which this warning pertains is the role or the act of serving in the capacity of teacher. Now, to really understand the totality of what James is stressing at this point, it's important for us to be aware of the historical context associated with the term that James uses for teachers. It's obvious that He's referring to teachers within the context of the local church because he's already identified his intended audience as believers, right? So these are teachers in the context of the local church. And in order to really get the full flavor of this warning, we need to understand something about what James had in mind when he makes reference to teachers, when he uses this particular Greek term, And in doing so, as I made preparations for tonight's lesson, just want to lay my cards on the table. I found the commentaries of John Gill, John MacArthur, and Douglas Moo to be extremely helpful in giving us an all-encompassing view of this particular term. So most of what I have to say here is not original to me. It's me taking those commentaries, collating them together, and hopefully providing you guys with a good illustration of what James had in mind. So I wanted to make sure I gave credit where credit is due on this particular subject before getting too far. So what is the specific historical context that James has in mind when he uses this term? Let's get to the question. The Greek term that James uses for teachers was often used of Jewish rabbis during the first century. You see, when viewed through a distinctly Jewish lens, the rabbis were perceived as master teachers. They were regarded with the highest degree of reverence by their fellow Jews. In some Jewish circles, rabbis were held in such high regard that a person's duty to his rabbi was considered to be even greater than his own parents. Think about that. Could you imagine living in a society when your allegiance, your devotion was to be higher to me and Brother Robert or whoever your pastor or spiritual leader in your local church is than your own parents. This is the line of thinking that these people operated in at that point in history. They would say, well, once parents only brought them into this world, it's the rabbi who would ultimately bring them into the world that was to come. That was the modus operandi. That was the mindset, if you will, that undergirded first century Jewish thought with regard to this term that James uses for teachers. In fact, it even became part of Jewish tradition that if a man's parents and his rabbi were to be captured by an enemy, you paid the ransom first for the rabbi and then you'd pay your ransom for your family. That was how celebrated Jewish teachers, particularly rabbis, were going into the first century A.D. It would not be an understatement to say that the rabbis were regarded as one of the most important classes of people in Israel by the time that James would have written this letter. So that's the historic Jewish background that's associated with the term that James is using for teachers here in verse 1. But there's also a particular way in which the New Testament uses this Greek word. As promised, we're going to look at the canonical context associated with this term. How is this word used throughout the New Testament? Very interesting. In Scripture, in the New Testament, this word for teacher is narrowly used to refer to any person in official teaching or preaching role. Just a few examples that we find this in. John chapter 3 verse 10, Acts 13:1, Romans 12:7, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 28 and Ephesians 4 verse 11. For the sake of helping you guys see this utilization in the word of God, I need five volunteers to help read each of those passages. So, John 3:10, Hannah, you can take that one. Acts 13:1, Wit. Romans 12:7. Would like to take Romans 12:7. Ellie, 1 Corinthians 12:28. Anyone want to take 1 Corinthians 12:28? Yes. Brittany and Ephesians 4:11. 1 Corinthians what? 12:28. Yes. Seth, you can take Ephesians 4:11. Appreciate all of you volunteers, and if you are not reading out loud, please Feel free to follow along in your Bible just so you can see some good New Testament examples where this same term that James uses is likewise being used by other biblical authors writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, Hannah, whenever you're ready, take us
3: off. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things?
0: Very good. And remember, that's Jesus talking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes up to Jesus secretly and is like, Hey, um, you know, you're know, you a teacher. You have authority. I want to know more. And Jesus, in context, is like, You are the teacher in Israel. You are the highest, most celebrated spiritual authority in the nation of Israel. And yet, you, you really don't understand how salvation works? Really?
3: <laughs>
0: That's what Christ is going for in that verse. Acts 13.1
2: now they were at Antioch, and the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul.
0: Very good. And now, really quickly, you're going to see this in a few of the other verses we're about to read. Notice how teachers is linked together with prophets. You're also going to see it linked together with apostles. That is to show that the role of teacher in the first century church was an extremely lofty role. It was very significant. So significant that it could be mentioned in the same breath as apostle and prophet. Just a thought for you guys. We'll maybe revisit that momentarily. Romans 12, 7. If service and art serving, the
1: one who teaches and is
0: teaching. Very good. That's the shortest one of the whole batch there for Ellie. Um Broader context, Romans 12, spiritual gifts. That's where you find teaching listed as a spiritual gift there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 28.
3: And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Very
0: good. So there it is again. Apostles, prophets, teachers, and then the sign gifts. Miracles, healing, Tongues right there. Very important gift. Very important role being a teacher in the first century church. Last text, Ephesians 4.11. And he gave
2: the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers.
0: Very good. So again, there's that mention of teachers there. Some very important roles in the early church. So in addition to that historical Jewish background, that we found associated with the term that James uses for teachers in verse 1 of chapter 3. The New Testament uses this term to make reference to a very prominent role in the life of first century churches. You may recall from our recent series on the biblical qualifications for church leadership that all who would serve as elders in the local church must have the spiritual gift of teaching. Furthermore, any individuals, or I should say many individuals who would serve as deacon and many of those who would serve in the capacity of Sunday school teacher or even in the role of a biblical counselor, those same individuals are likely going to have the spiritual gift of teaching. So you don't just have to be an elder if you have the spiritual gift of teaching. Not everybody who has the gift of teaching will be an elder, Of course, if you're a woman, you're automatically disqualified from serving as an elder. But you can still have the gift of teaching. But on the other hand, it's important to note, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, if you're going to be an elder, you must have the gift of teaching. To be an elder is to have the gift of teaching inherently. But it's still very common. It's very common to have a plurality of people with the spiritual gift of teaching Utilizing their giftedness in the local church for the edification of those who are sitting under their care, as I mentioned, um, men's Sunday school classes, deacons, Bible studies taught by a layperson, whether it be a men's Bible study or a woman's Bible study, even children's Sunday school classes, all are typically led and should be led by those who the church recognizes as somebody who has been spiritually gifted to teach. I mean, just think of this logically. Would you really want somebody in the role of teacher that's not gifted to function as a teacher? No, you wouldn't want that at all, right? It wouldn't make any sense. You want people serving as teachers who God has gifted for that capacity. So this is the... The Jewish historical background regarding the term that James uses for teachers As well as the New Testament backdrop as well It's against this backdrop, both those backdrops rather The Jewish backdrop and the New Testament backdrop That it should come as no surprise that James offers such a strong warning against those Who would want to serve in the context of formal teaching roles Think about this for a minute Imagine that you were living in the first century or even before the first century, and you saw the way that Jewish rabbis were celebrated by the surrounding culture. And you saw the prestige and the authority that was often associated with those rabbis. And imagine if you're a female today, that you're a male back then. So imagine you're a male, you're in the first century AD or before, You've seen how Jewish rabbis are celebrated by the surrounding culture. You've seen their prestige and their authority. What do you think would be a temptation that you would be battling in those days? You're going to want to be a rabbi. Or if you're you know, a Christian, a local church, you want to be a teacher, right? Many first century Christians. James is writing to Jewish Christians. So he's using a term that would have appealed to their Jewish customs, their Jewish background, and he's also applying it to the context of a new covenant church. And he's saying, listen, I understand first century readers. I understand the desire and the attraction to be in a position of spiritual authority. Very natural to maybe have that inclination just because of how much those rules get celebrated. James was well aware that there could have been people wanting to teach and serve in roles of spiritual authority for the wrong reasons. And we still find that as an issue today. So, James, as the half brother of Christ and as one who had a prominent role in the early church, I think he would have had the words of Christ from a passage like Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7, on his mind right as he prepares to deliver this warning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Flip over to Matthew 23, verses 5 to 7. I want you to see this cross-reference here. Again, James thinking through this, okay, how do I make sure that I keep people at bay who may want to be a teacher in the local church for the wrong reason? Well, here's a good text that he would have been familiar with as the half-brother of our Lord. He writes, or he, uh, when Jesus made these comments right on the cusp of what we just celebrated a couple weeks ago being Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, the Passion Week, Jesus says these words in Matthew 23, 5-7. He says, The Pharisees and Sadducees do all their deeds to be noticed by men, For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets in the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called Rabbi by men. My friends, this is the context of James's warning in verse one of chapter three. And this warning is influenced by his firsthand observation of Jewish rabbis wrongfully taking advantage of their positions of spiritual authority. And James is saying here, with texts like this in the back of his mind, he's saying, be very, very careful, first century Jewish Christians to whom I'm writing, be very, very careful that you're not going into a role that you have no business entering into yourself. Man, we would do so well today, wouldn't we? If we look at the totality of Western Christianity, we would do so well today to heed this warning, to heed this mindset. Because if you look at most evangelical churches today, and you look at the kind of people that are in roles of spiritual leadership you find a rampant prevalence of unqualified men and women serving in the role of teacher or elder or deacon. This is a rampant problem. It all stems largely from people desiring those roles, but not themselves having any business being in them. They are not spiritually or biblically qualified. And if I could just say this by way of parenthesis before we move on to our next subheading. Show me the church's ecclesiology. That is, show me how the church is governed. Show me how the church is structured. Show me how the membership process of a local church is structured. Show me the disciplinary and accountability structures in a local church. Show me all of those things. And I'll tell you everything you need to know about the leadership of that church. Indeed, we would do well to heed these words of warning from James in our present day. So having said that, up to this point in our lesson, just by way of reminder, we have uncovered the identity of James's audience in the warning contained in verse 1. Just... Here in our second subheading, we just finished identifying the specific context of James's warning as found in verse 1. The context being those who would serve in the role of <laughs> teachers in the local church. And as we prepare to draw tonight's lesson to a conclusion, I want us to observe now the reason or the purpose for James' warning contained in verse 1. And again, I open up the floor at this time. Based on what we find written in James three one, can somebody tell me the reason that James provides, or the purpose undergirding James's warning in this opening verse of chapter three?
2: What do you think, buddy? Um, it says that they will be judged heavier. We'll say what? What's that? Yeah, judge. Stricter
0: judgment. There it is. That's the purpose. Okay, that's the reason. James isn't just saying, hey guys, please don't, please don't be a teacher because I just, you know, I like having it all for myself. I like being the only teacher. I've got my own little posse of teachers that I want to be serving in this role in the local church. No. James has a very biblical reason for offering this warning. He says that if you're going to serve in the role of teacher, you're going to have a stricter judgment. Before the Most High. Now, depending on the context in which it is being used, the Greek word that James uses for judgment can either be positive or negative. As we've talked about many times in the past, context always determines how we should interpret any given word, especially when that word's interpretation largely rests upon the context in which it's found. When speaking of unbelievers, this term for judgment is used in reference to the great white throne judgment that we find described in Revelation chapter 20, verses eleven to fifteen. And when speaking of believers, this term that James uses here for judgment is in reference to the beam of seat judgment, which we find referenced in texts like Romans 14:12, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, and 2 Corinthians 5:10. Now, based on the theological and practical implications that stem from this verse, I personally believe that there is a duality of ways that we can interpret it. Stated differently, James 3.1 has a particular significance for how it applies to believers, and it has a particular significance for how it applies to unbelievers, specifically believers who teach God's Word and unbelievers who teach God's Word. So as we seek to unpack this final portion of James 3.1, let us first turn our attention to the way this verse has application for Christian Bible teachers. That is, followers of Jesus Christ who would teach God's Word in formal local church settings. When speaking of teachers of God's Word who are believers, James 3.1, let me just make sure this is absolutely clear, James 3.1 is not insinuating that Christian Bible teachers will face a judgment that could potentially lead to them going to hell. That's a way this verse has been misinterpreted by Christians throughout church history. It's not saying that Christians who teach the Bible could possibly go to hell depending on how they teach the Bible one way or another. It's not what it's saying at all. Rather, again, speaking of Christian Bible teachers here, the reference to judgment in James 3.1 is a foreshadowing of the account that Christians are going to have to give before the Lord Jesus Christ based on how they stewarded their teaching ministries that they were involved with. Did you catch that? For Christian Bible teachers, this warning is pertaining to the account that they'll have to give before Christ for how they stewarded their teaching responsibilities That God had entrusted to them. Although it's certainly true that all Christians, as I noted in those passages referring to the Bema Seat, all Christians are going to have to stand before Christ to give an account of their life. Christian teachers will have an extra degree of accountability when they are evaluated by the Risen Lord, and when those Christian Bible teachers, including myself tonight. When we are standing before the all knowing, all powerful, and perfectly holy God man, when the corpus of our life is laid bare and the substance of our teaching ministry is laid to his scrutiny, our eternal reward will largely be determined upon how faithful we were to teaching and applying the full counsel of God's Word in our ministries. My friends, It's with these realities in mind that James emphasizes the sobering responsibility that serving in a position of Bible teacher should be for the believer. You know, this isn't something where we just say, Yeah, well, I'm saved, and it really doesn't matter how I teach God's Word. I'm just going to go through the motions, and I want to teach because I like having this role or this position. That's a complete undermining of passages like Romans 6, where Paul makes the argument... Because you've been saved by grace, you should be motivated to glorify God with your life. And when I think about my calling as a teacher of God's Word, I find myself continuing to meditate on this sobering truth that I'm going to have to stand before Christ someday in all of my life, and particularly my life as a teacher, including this message I'm delivering to you. It's going to be laid bare before Christ, and I'm going to have to give an account for how I stewarded these responsibilities. Brother Robert is going to have to give an account. Every pastor who would ever stand behind the sacred desk, every teacher, women, Bible study teachers, men who would lead Bible studies, those who would teach in preschool context about the things of God, we will all have to give an account for how we stewarded the role and responsibility of teaching. And when we view James 3.1 from this lens, we find that there should never be a situation where a Christian just enters into a Bible teaching role with a hasty or a nonchalant attitude. On the contrary, the person who serves as Bible teacher should do so with a constant awareness that he or she will have a higher degree of accountability before God. Even though the believer has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and has been saved by the trying God, there is still much that the teacher will still have to account for when they appear at the Bema Seat Judgment. Therefore, I charge every person here tonight and every person listening to this recording who serves in the role as a Bible teacher, as a Christian nonetheless, May you embark upon your ministry task of teaching the Word of God, of preaching the Word of God with great humility. And may you always model a prayerful reverence before the living God for the role He's called you into. To teach God's Word is the highest privilege and responsibility, but it also comes with a higher degree of accountability as well. And that brings us to reflect now on the significance of James 3.1 with regard to unbelieving teachers of God's Word. We just considered briefly what James 3.1 has in regard to those who are Christian Bible teachers. Now let's consider what James 3.1 has in regard to non-Christian Bible teachers. To help us kind of get our arms around this idea, I, I went to a to three texts that are found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I wanted us to see how this side of the coin is really accentuated by those texts along with another text from the Gospel of Matthew that should provide additional supplement to what Christ is going for in these texts from the Synoptic. So let's just read these texts together. Matthew 18, 5-6. I need a volunteer to take that one. Emma, thank you very much. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 43, wit. And then Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 2, Hannah. So we're going to read these three texts, okay? They're largely going to say the same thing. That's why they're from the Synoptic Gospels, right? Very similar in what's going to be articulated here by Christ. But I hope what this is going to do is it's going to set the stage for landing the plane and drawing this point to a conclusion from James. I hope you find it very sobering to consider. Though I trust everybody in here is in Christ. I trust everybody here tonight is a believer. For those who are false teachers, for those who are not biblically qualified to teach, this principle should really cut to the heart. So, Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Emma, whenever you're ready, take that away for us, please. And whoever
1: welcomes one causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large mouse millstone millstone hung around their neck and to be
2: drowned in the depths of the sea. Very good. Now Mark nine, forty two to forty three. Luke
0: 17, 1 and 2. Oh, and by the way, just right there, don't ever say that Jesus never taught about hell. Uh, he clearly just mentions hell as an unquenchable fire uh, in the Gospel of Mark. So that's, that's just a parenthetical statement. Hannah, go for it. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe
3: to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea
0: Okay, so if you had to summarize everything that Christ said in those three passages from the Synoptic Gospels, what's he saying? If you had to say it just very, very simply, what would you say? Don't cause, don't cause, them to don't cause anybody to stumble, right? You do everything you can to avoid being a stumbling block to somebody else. Now, there's many ways that we can be stumbling blocks to people. But my friends... Take the totality of God's Word, particularly the New Testament. We find that one of, if not the greatest stumbling blocks that you could ever do or or carry out, as it were, is leading somebody astray in their beliefs about God's Word. You want to know the most severe stumbling block there is? It's to lead somebody astray in their beliefs about God and about how they ought to live before God. If you read Matthew 23, verses 1 to 36, you'll find how Jesus stresses the multitude of ways that unbelieving Jewish religious leaders had led the nation of Israel astray from God's Word during the first century. We don't have time to read all 36 verses. I would just encourage you to do so if you've never read that text. Very, very heavy and powerful stuff. But if I could just summarize that passage. Jesus is saying that the truth of Scripture had been replaced by the tradition of men. The heart of true religious expression had been replaced with mechanical rituals and regulations. And the Messiah who had come to Israel with open arms had been rejected by the vast majority of the nation. And notice how Christ responds to that just condemning discourse that he provides in Matthew 23. Read all 36 verses if you have the opportunity to do so. But let me just read you verses 33 to 36. Here's Christ's conclusion. How did Christ feel about the stumbling blocks created by the Pharisees and Sadducees that he outlines in verses 1 to 32? He says this, verse 33 and following. He says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell. Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come. Upon this generation. What's Christ saying about teachers of his word that are unconverted, specifically with reference to the Pharisees and Sadducees, with broader application to any unbeliever who would ever serve as a teacher? This is what Christ is saying here. He's saying, Not only are you yourself on your way to eternal judgment in hell by virtue of being an unbeliever, but I hold you most responsible, Christ says. For the stumbling of those who have been entrusted under your care. Listen to that. Christ is saying not only are you going to hell if you don't repent. If you remain on the track of unbelief. But because you as a teacher continually cause those to be led astray who are under your care. Because you continually twist the word of God and don't apply it as it's supposed to be applied in real life. I'm going to hold you most responsible for the stumbling of those who've been entrusted under your care. My friends, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. For the Christian, let's just land the plane here. For the Christian, it would be far greater for you to serve in the local church and never formally teach God's word... Than to teach scripture for more than 50 years and to have done so without truly recognizing the weighty functioning of serving as God's spokesperson. For those of you tonight who are in Christ and, and you're thinking about being a teacher of God's word, because you think it'd be kind of cool to have some authority and some say-so in the local church and people can see you front and center under the spotlight, behind the pulpit. If that's your motive for going into the role of teacher and you're not going to put in the hard work of study and you're not going to devote yourself to accurately interpreting God's Word and accurately applying God's Word and you're not going to live out what you are reading about in Scripture and what you're telling other people to live out in Scripture, if that's not you... It would be better for you to never open your mouth about God's Word in a formal teaching context than to go into it hastily, to go into it nonchalantly with no reverence, to not put in the hard work of study, to not live a lifestyle that's in keeping with the testimony of God's Word. It would be so much better for you just to serve and keep your mouth shut than to serve in a teaching capacity for all your life and have a higher degree of accountability for your failure to do the kind of work you were called to do from the word of God. But for the unbeliever, to land the plane. If you are an unbeliever, first off, repent and believe the gospel. Surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Receive his free gift of salvation that is offered to all who will call upon His name. If you're a non-Christian and you are a teacher of God's Word, I call you to repentance and faith. But even so, in your current state, non-Christian Bible teacher, it would be far greater for you to have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and to have perished in your unbelief than to regularly teach God's Word for many years and in doing so to lead others astray in their beliefs about God. Every unbelieving teacher of God's Word who has not truly repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as their only way of having a saving relationship with God. Every such person who teaches God's Word and intentionally deceives those under their care, they will have a greater condemnation and they will bear the unmitigated wrath of God for their leading people astray for all of eternity future. And that should cause us to tremble in our bones. It should bring us to tears. When you look at all the false teachers in this world, when you look at all the ungodly, unqualified men, who are teaching the word on a regular basis, that should cause us to tremble and to weep and to pray for their repentance and ultimately for them to come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. So having said that, may we be diligent to heed this preliminary warning by James as we strive to be those who model Christ-like conduct through our speech. I pray you found this lesson edifying faithful to Scripture, and thought-provoking as we begin to transition into our season of group discussion. So if you will, go ahead and flip your handout over to page 2 if you haven't done so already. You'll find our group discussion questions contained at the bottom of page 2. And I hope that we will enjoy a fruitful discussion as we consider the content of what was discussed during the lesson starting with question 1 to what extent did you agree with the following statement that was made during the lesson and here's a direct quote every man who has truly been called to serve in a position of spiritual leadership will have a genuine love for the people he is serving end quote what do you guys think about that Agree, disagree.
2: Michael, what do you think? Yes. You agree? Why do you agree with that, buddy? Because if, if they don't, then they haven't really been called. Like, who have been called? Yeah. That's good. What do you think, Witt? I think that um, that God puts that love in it because I feel like it, it helps them to, like, actually... It like helps them to teach better. Is that makes Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Yeah. I feel like um
3: all of the ministers that I've seen have expressed that. Like, I, even if it's not outright telling people, like I love you, like, like even in Brother Robert on Sundays, like I can I can see in his expressions mm-hmm. that he genuinely cares and loves us. Like, like it cares about us. No it's not there's so many different ways I can see it displayed so I, I actually really
0: agree. Well, yeah, praise the Lord. You've been in a church where you haven't had a question that from your senior pastor.
2: With. I think that's what I was trying to say. Like without a genuine care for like your um for your people as a pastor, it would be hard to like uh it would be hard to administer them. Right. And we we could say so just to get
0: Somewhat technical, but also maybe get through some of the weeds here as well. So obviously God's sovereign over every detail of human history. So every, every pastor is there by God's decree, right? God, God has put every pastor, whether they're a godly pastor or whether they're an ungodly pastor, they're there for a time and a purpose, okay? But of those who serve in the office of pastor... There's a special blessing. There's a special anointing. There's a special calling on the godly man. On the man that God has put there for the purpose of glorifying His name through the proper preaching of His Word and through the building up of His people in that church. And it's that particular man, that man of God, that has a genuine love, born by the Holy Spirit, for the people placed under His care. Think about this. Jesus said the greatest commandments. Summarization of the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's commandments one through four. And then, second, love your neighbor as yourself. That's commandments five through ten. Now, think about this. If the greatest commandment, second greatest commandment, is for anybody, any human being, That, that is your second greatest commandment. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. If that can be said to everybody, How much more so would it be expected for a pastor, a spiritual leader, serving in the role, the highest role, of governing and presiding over the people of God? How much more would they be expected to model that kind of love? I mean, it it would be the just obvious expectation for them to be a person who loves God's people. And because God's gracious... Because he's kind, because he's at work and those whom he has saved and whom he has sanctified and one day whom he will glorify, he gives them, as you said, Witt, he gives them the kind of love they need to minister to God's people. And though it's not always easy, God is faithful to build up that man of God to endure whatever comes his way in the ministry, to love the sheep, to tend to the sheep, to feed the sheep, to protect the sheep, to walk alongside the sheep and do the, du- uh, do the duties of pastoral ministry. Very good. Question two now. Question two. What did you think of R.C. Sproul's explanation about how God uses the warning passages in Scripture as a means of enabling His elect to persevere in their faith? What did you think about that question and about that quote? So remember, the, questions, the question that precipitated this quote was this. Why can't God just, when we get saved, why can't we just become perfect until Christ calls us home or returns? Why do we have to struggle through sin? And then, as a corollary to that, like, why can't, in light of if God did that, Like, why do we have all these warning passages in Scripture? Why these commands? Why these prohibitions? Why do we need those things? And then Sproul gave the explanation. Those are the means, part of the means, that God uses to enable us to persevere in our faith, to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in our dependence upon the living God. So what did you think about some of that perspective that Sproul offers there? Have you ever thought about that, like, No. you have, Ellie? I think that the verses keep us aware so that we are able to prepare for whatever's coming our way. Yeah. No, they're exactly right. It keeps you in a proper perspective that, you know, like, I need to trust God. I need to pray to the Lord. I need to view myself as dependent upon Him because in and of myself, there's no way in my own strength I can keep these commandments, that I can uh, heed these warnings. That's very good. Um, what?
2: I think that um, our main purpose on earth is to glorify God. And by like by struggling through these and becoming sanctified, I think that it brings glory to God. Rather than that's exactly right. And, you know, that's and that's something I always come back to um,
0: because that's something that I have thought about in the past, and I've heard people bring up in the past. They're like, you know, if God is all powerful, what's the point of sanctification? Why don't He just and of course, they can push the card all the way back. Why do you even allow evil in the world in the first place, right? Like, they do all those sorts of things. And they'll say, you know, like, he could have just saved us and made us perfect. Like, what's the deal? Why, why God do those sorts of things? Well, if you take yourself out of the center of reality, you put God at the center of reality. And everything exists for his glory and for his power to be put on display. He does that through sanctification. He does that through allowing his people to go through trials and hardships and suffering and all the rest so that they still worship Him and serve Him faithfully and testify to His goodness. And that brings glory to Him. And I always come back to this as well thinking through issues like this. God, His wisdom is foolish often to man. Think about this. He uses a book that's been preserved for millennia to teach us about who He is, how we can be saved, and how we can live. Like, God could have just implanted that knowledge in our mind. He wouldn't have to use verbal proclamation of His Word to do that. He could have just given it all to us at the moment we got saved. Or as R.C. Sproul has also said elsewhere, He could just preach all day long to us from the sky. And and just give the best sermon every single day. But God has been pleased to use an ancient book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to use fragile and feeble men like me and others and women as well to teach God's word to people so that they can then be transformed by that word and that's foolish to the to the man or woman who's unsaved that is just dumb you really believe that book is the means God uses to make you like Christ you really believe that well Yes, I do, because that's what God does. And that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. I've chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. I've I've, I've chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And I do that to magnify my own wisdom. God says, I'm so wise that I use things that man deems foolish to accomplish my purposes. That is remarkable to think about. Even the warning passages like we just read from James three one, it's one of those means that God uses to accomplish His purpose. Making us into the likeness of Christ. Glorifying Himself in doing so. Any other thoughts before we move on to number three? Alright, number three. This is a real doozy. What are your thoughts about having to stand before Christ to give an account of your life even as a believer? By a right, show of hands, how many of you guys knew before tonight that even as a Christian, you're still going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account of the way you live in this world? Did, it, did, it, did everybody know that? That wasn't news to anybody? Okay, wow, well, I figured there'd be at least one person here who didn't have their hand up. My bad. I guess I underestimated you guys. Um, what does that do for you when you think about that reality?
3: I think a just like the warning passages has the same on those it mm-hmm. keeps us in check like it if I were to like equate it to something like on earth that's like that makes me think of like having integrity like if my mom saw everything I did all the time like mm-hmm. of course I'm going to want to do the right thing right that, that's kind of what I like would equate that to like having integrity
0: right Now that's really good I mean, you think about it, if we're afraid of disappointing our mom or our father or our friend or whoever, how much more should we be afraid of, you know, disappointing the infinitely holy and righteous and powerful God who saved us from our sin? You know, shame on us, you know, we, God is so gracious and He's so patient that we can sin and get away with it, and we're like, yeah, like God, He'll forgive me, you know, like, And when I have to stand before him someday, like, I'm going to heaven. So, I mean, how bad can it really be? Like, shame on us for having those dots that cross our mind. Because when we really think about what God's done to save us and to reveal himself to us, man, that should just drive us to obedience and to worship and to be the men and women he's called us to be. And doing things like we're doing tonight, again, you want to talk about foolishness? We had things beeping all night, giggling, a lot of moving parts tonight, but guess what? God, I guarantee this, God used everything tonight, from the prayers that we prayed, the songs that we sung, and this, He used all of it to make you. If you're a believer, even if it's .00001%, He made you just a little bit more like Christ tonight. So I hope that's an encouragement to you. And in doing so, as He makes you more like Christ, you're going to be, as Hannah mentioned, you're going to be more and more inclined to want to honor Christ with every aspect of your life because you know one day you're going to give an account to Him. And you're going to be given an account not to a judge. Your debt's already been paid. Christ has already borne God's wrath in your place. Justice has been satisfied. You're going to be giving an account before a, a, a Lord who loves you and a Lord who bought you with the price and that reality should even drive us further obedience because we're not laboring for a tyrant. We're labeling for a loving and gracious Lord and Savior, an advocate. I have a
1: question.
0: Go for it. What is
2: the difference between
1: judgment and
0: wrath? I would say that wrath is the expression of judgment. Judgment is the verdict. Wrath is the, the actual acting out of that verdict. Um, that would be how I would go for, go for that. It's a good question. Um, Okay, number four. How does the reality of Bible teachers being held to a higher degree of accountability impact your desire to teach God's Word?
2: Makes you want
0: to know what you're talking about. Yeah, makes you want to know what you're talking about. That's right. I feel like for me, like we started listing
3: like other people that could be Bible teachers, and you said preschool, and then I was like. Wait, I say, and then I was like, "Wait, I'm going to be a camp counselor this summer." So yeah, that's a it, teacher. It really made me think about it more. Like, I mean, I already know that's a, a huge responsibility, but it just took it that much further. Like, I want to honor God and do it, and I would like I would hate to know mm-hmm. that I caused somebody to stumble. Mm-hmm. So it really helps me take it a lot more seriously. Sure.
0: So a few years back. Well, it's probably been closer to about five or six years. Let's see. We met in 2017, so it's been five years. So, Bell and I had just started dating. give you guys a little um, biographical piece here. We just started dating, and we had uh, some professors from Southern Seminary come down to Countryside Bible Church, which is where we were members at at that time, and one of those professors from Southern that came down for the conference was a man by the name of Donald Whitney. Y'all heard of Donald Whitney before? Um, if you did the young adult study with Alec and Brittany, they did the um, spiritual disciplines book that he authored, curriculum. Anyways, don't know who he is. doesn't matter. Go Google him. It's kind of a big deal. Don't take my word for it. Point being, moving forward now with the story. Um, so he was up there during a QA, and like, a and they were talking about discerning the call to ministry and um, really like, how do I know if I'm called to preach and teach God's word? What should I do? And one of the pieces of advice that he gave and the reason why I still remember this is because my father in law was really just pressing me on, you know, you really need to make sure you're called to ministry before you sell out for it entirely. And it was in the context of all that where Donald Whitney in that Q&A said, that if you can do anything else with your life, do it. Do, do not go into ministry. Do not be a Bible teacher on a regular basis if you can do anything else with your life. Go do that other thing. Go serve in that other way. He said my advice should be you should only go into vocational ministry. You should only desire to teach God's Word regularly if you just can't not do it. Or it's just a burden. You have to preach. You have to teach. You have to go and serve Christ's church. That's your life calling. You know it. You can't explain it. But it is just the burden and passion you have. And, um, you know, God is faithful. I know from firsthand experience, I, I spent probably close to three years working in uh secular world, particularly in the finance industry with in Wells Fargo. And... I had some success, but I always wanted to go to ministry, and I always wanted to teach God's word. and I kept coming back to what Dr. Whitney was talking about, and I knew the texts like James 3: one and Hebrews 1317 and all the other ones that talk about Bible teachers and, and, and those in spiritual leadership roles. Having to give an account before God for their ministry and being held to a higher level of accountability. And as terrifying as those things are, and as I mentioned earlier, as much as I am consumed with those warnings and those realities taught in Scripture, I must serve Christ's church. I must teach. I am compelled and convicted to do so. And if you're called, if you're called to teach God's word, whether it's as a pastor, whether it's as a counselor, whether it's as a preschool teacher, whether it's as a men's or women's Bible study leader, whatever the case may be, whatever your ministry context is, if God's called you there, it will be a burden on your soul to do it and to do it well. If God has not called you into those types of roles, you, you, you probably won't put the hard work and study in. You probably won't really pour into the people under your care Um you won't really feel a burden to do it. it it'll be a, it'll be, um, it'll be the other way. It won't be a burden to do it in the sense of I must do it. It'll be a burden to do it in the sense of Oh man, like I gotta study God's word and deliver this message, and I gotta interact with all these people who are gonna come to my lesson. Like if that's how you feel, you may not be called to that particular role. Um, so just some things to think about. Um, again, Dr. Whitney's not scripture, but I think he's got some good wisdom regarding discerning the call of ministry and, and the call to teach God's word. Um, but any other thoughts on that principle? So Hannah's going to be teaching. We've got Brittany Cunningham in the house. She does a great job with our Motherwise ministry. we got Alan Taylor, pastor at Lifeway Baptist Church, another great um, and gifted Bible teacher here. And um, who knows, maybe some of you. My wife teaches preschool um, level. So she's, she even gets in the mix with some teaching from time to time. So we've got a lot of people in here who are involved with teaching God's Word. And my prayer for you is the same prayer that it is for me. I mean, that we would just embrace this calling with great sobriety. That we, that we have a reverence for it. That we pray often for God to empower us and enable us to be faithful to His Word, not just to accurately understand it, as important as that is, but so that we could also live it out in our own lives, because it's just as important to live it out as it is to preach it. So,
4: Alan, you know, when I got saved 22 years ago, I wanted to preach, but I, uh, I didn't feel worthy, and even even today, I really don't. I battle with feeling that, but. like like I'm not good enough to preach. And somebody made a comment the other day whenever I told them I was preaching over at the Lifeway Baptist Church, and they said, well, that was what you were after, right? That was what you wanted. And uh, the implication, of course, if I look too deep, I'll... Right. But it wasn't... What I always wanted was to serve. Mm. I remember when I first got saved, I, I had only been saved for about... I guess six weeks or so when I went to a convention and uh, they were and I was so excited to be able to hear different preachers and I was just just pumped up and you know they were asking me it was about some controversial issues in the ministry and then I, I had just read all of First and Second Corinthians that morning and I said I wasn't going to say anything I'm just going to listen to everybody because these are real smart guys and I'm a mechanic on the railroad you know and I I, I barely passed high school. So I'm not going to talk. And then they asked me what I thought. And so I told them, I said, it's pretty clear in the word of God what it says. You know, and I, I, and so what I told them was, is that, you know, if if, if if my job is to clean the commodes and change the wax ring and fix the plumbing in the church until the day God calls me home, then I'm going to do that and I'm going to honor God. And that's always been my, my intent. And so whenever you teach or whenever you preach, you, you know that, that you have to you have to be, be right whenever you're teaching the word of God because if you call somebody to stumble, like those warnings you said, you'd be better if you'd have a millstone around your neck, mm-hmm. you know and that's what always worries you is because you don't want to be misleading, you want to be clear you want everybody to understand exactly where you're coming from, That's right. and so you know, my heart mm-hmm. you asked, how do you feel about it, it's I'm constantly praying, asking God to show me, to, to protect me, Amen. to keep my mouth shut. Don't let me say anything that's going to cause anybody to stumble. Amen. Because that's the last thing I want, anyway. Yeah, that's no, good.
0: It's good testimony. Heard it several times I, get, I love it this as much now as I did when I first heard it. Well, guys, that is the conclusion of tonight's study. Hope that you found it uh, thought provoking, edifying. Let me pray. And then we can fellowship for as long as you guys want to stay over here. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of returning to our study in the book of James and to begin a consideration of how we can model Christ-like conduct through our pattern of speech. And God, I think if every one of us were honest with ourselves, we can all acknowledge that our pattern of speech has plenty of room for improvement. And we ask God that... You would grant us forgiveness for the times in which we've spoken carelessly or intentionally use our mouths to commit acts of sin against others and ultimately against you. And God, we ask that moving forward, the Holy Spirit would further conform our speech pattern into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that the testimony of our lips would reflect the one who never lied, who never gossiped, who never engaged in coarse jesting, who never failed to use his mouth to respond appropriately to whatever context he he encountered in this sinful and fallen world. And Father, we also want to pray for those who we know and even those here tonight who are either currently serving in positions of spiritual authority in the local church or for those who aspire to serve in such capacities. If there are those here tonight who i have not yet served in that role, but would like the opportunity to maybe serve in teaching capacities in the future. Lord, we do pray for those individuals that they would be consumed with the warning that is found in the passage we studied tonight and is also found in many other places throughout your word. Father, we ask that we would each have reverence for the responsibility that it is to teach and proclaim your word and Father, for the responsibility that it is to serve the people under our care, to point them to the truths of Scripture, to be sound in their doctrine, and to be faithful in their lifestyle practices, Lord. I pray that if there's anybody in our local churches right now who are either unsound in their theology or careless in their attitude toward preaching, that you would remove them swiftly from their current position. God, remove anybody in our churches right now, Lord, Lord, Or in the near future, remove those who have no business serving in the position of spiritual leadership and authority. God, it is our prayer that by the power of your word, working together with the power of your Holy Spirit, that our local churches that we're a part of would be faithful to Scripture, that they would be filled with men and women who love you and love your word and want to see you magnified and honored through those who have committed themselves to studying and applying sacred Scripture in every facet of their lives. I thank you for every person here tonight and for the families they represent. I thank you for the deep love that you have given uh, to me for them and the deep love you have for them in Christ. Lord, I pray that our love for one another would continue to grow richer and deeper as we have these Thursday night fellowships and as we are a part of one another's lives outside of these walls. Pray for a special blessing upon them and their families as they leave this place tonight. And Lord, would you begin to prepare our hearts to worship you corporately with your people on the Lord's Day and the local churches to which we belong. We commit all of this to you in prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior,
4: Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.